Wow, what a confession. Uh, Take my heart. Form it. Take my mind. Transform it. Take my will. Conform it. To yours. You sounded like you meant it. And I think it behooves us all to really determine, did we? Just a little private moment as we get ready to hear something from God. Do I really want your way, your will, your plan, your purpose, your outcomes? Or do I really want my way? So, Father, you are the revealer of all things. Would you reveal to us right now our hearts? Where we're conflicted, where we're double-minded. And would you bring grace and power to us that we might choose your way? Because we're powerless to do that otherwise. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a really good time because my family invited me to go see a movie with them. Sometimes they go without me. And they invited me to go with them. And we went to see the fourth installment of Indiana Jones. How many of you have seen it? Wow. Quite a few of you, all right. So, um, had, did anybody see it and you had not seen any of the previous three? Let me just see if that fits anybody in the house. No way, Jose. Okay. <laughs> so, everybody had seen at least one of those previous three episodes. Uh, you know, when the, the movie started and a few little uh, things unfolded and there was a few lines that were delivered that... If you had the history of the prior three episodes, I just found them hilarious. I was just sitting there laughing out loud at some of the things that were transpiring and some of the things that were being said because they had these little references to stuff that had gone on like 20 years ago in those previous three episodes. Um, We're introduced to a new character in this particular film, a guy by the name of Mutt, who uh, doesn't know what to think about this bespeckled professor of archaeology and history that we come to know as Indiana Jones. And as the story begins to unfold, the kid is absolutely shocked, right, to find out that this kind of staid, boring, stoic professor is actually this incredibly whip-snapping, adventuresome, uh, daring kind of dude, right? And so the, the adventure unfolds, and I won't say any more about that. But the point in all that is this. When you know other parts of the story and you're beginning to look at a newer part of the story, context immediately happens. And lines that wouldn't have made much sense, wouldn't have had much nuance to somebody that was only seeing episode four, had never seen the previous three. Uh, You caught that, you captured that where it would have gone right by some other people. Now, even though those little nuances would have gone by, you're still going to capture the story of episode four. But it's ever so much more rich and broad when you know the rest 
of the story. Right? You know where I'm going with that. Because what we're talking about these weeks is how God's story, this great meta-narrative, is not just His story or history, but it's our story. And as we launched into this last week, I was calling for us to say, uh, we've got to find out not only what His story is all about, but what is our story? How does that fit the big story, the meta-story, the meta-narrative? And so God's story basically has three huge movements. One is creation, and then we get into this whole thing of condemnation, and then we get into this thing of redemption. And obviously we're on the very front end as we're talking about creation. But if you already know parts of the story that are in the condemnation section, if you already know parts of the story that are in the redemption section, then a whole lot of the creation section begins to make more sense to you. Are you with me? Okay, good. So, uh, last week we got into chapter 1 of Genesis, and we saw God do it. With the power of word, speak into being all there is of creation. In the beginning was not creation. In the beginning was God. And then out of his heart for us, to have relationship, to have fellowship with us, came creation. We were in the heart of God before the foundation of the world, we found out last week. And so now we're at the part in the creation narrative where what God has been building up to, you know, He's hurled out planets and solar systems and, and now this planet Earth and with all of the water and the air and the vegetation and the animal life, everything that can sustain our life. Now we're at the part where He brings us into the picture. You ready? Okay. Along the way, we find out who is God. I mean... <laughs> We, we can talk about that for years, for decades, right? And we never fully answer that because God is so big. God is so far-reaching. And today we're also talking about who is mankind. Do you know how crazy I went this week trying to talk about these huge subjects in three hours? Because that's all we're going to do. No, I'm talking to you. So I just fell over. Okay, relax. Who is God? Well, last week we found out that He is Creator. That's huge. There's so much we could be talking about for weeks to come. We, we just barely scratched the surface on that last time. But today, we're also finding out that God is Redeemer. Now, why would we already find out God is Redeemer? We haven't even gotten to the condemnation part of the story. Right? But already, we get this foreshadowing happening in the story where God begins to disclose Himself as Redeemer. And now this will all be fleshed out a little bit more in some coming chapters that are going to happen in Genesis. And you already know that. In chapter 12 of Genesis, we're introduced to a guy by the name of Abraham who is called by God to leave Ur and go to Canaan where he will enter into this covenant with God so that Abraham will be blessed by God and will become a nation. We know that becomes the nation of Israel. A covenant. God is a covenant-making 
Redeemer. Which we're going to need, and that's going to become even more apparent. As the narrative continues to unfold, when you get to Genesis chapter 22, and we see that the heir of Abraham, that's going to be, you know, uh, leading to all this great nation in years to come, Isaac, is taken up to Mount Moriah because uh, God has told Abraham, I want you to take your son up there and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Make a little altar, put some wood on there, kill him, burn him up. I want to consume him as an offering. Is there anywhere else later in the story where a father in the midst of covenant and redemption activity sacrifices his son? Foreshadowing of more things that are to come. And then when we get to Genesis chapter 37, we get to the great-grandson of Abraham, a guy by the name of Joseph, who is absolutely betrayed by his brothers and literally dies to his family as he's sold off into slavery and carried off into Egypt. And there he is dead to his family and dead to the family dream and dead to what uh, is going to become Israel for years and years and years until God raises him up and empowers him and exalts him. Does that sound like anybody in a story a little bit later in the narrative? See, you see what we're talking about? We keep having all this foreshadowing stuff going on, and we don't even know why all, these, these images are coming. We don't even know the full impact and import of all these uh, foreshadowing messages. And that is so illustrated in today's text, because we're going to begin in chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 4. And as we were going through chapter 1, there were 30 references to God in chapter 1. God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this. 30 in chapter 1. And every one of those references used the Hebrew word Elohim, which is a very common word in the Hebrew Old Testament for God. But then when we get into chapter 2 and start picking up the story in verse 4, the story changes from talking about Elohim to talking about Yahweh Elohim. Now, if you're not reading that in Hebrew, you're just like, so? The way it's translated in English is it says, Lord God. If you're already looking in your, in your text, you see, Lord God. And every time in the Old Testament you come across the word Lord in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that means it's the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, or sometimes referred to as Jehovah, which is the covenant name of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm getting goose pimply already. Because here we've been, Elohim, 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 create, 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 create. Chapter 2, we're about to introduce mankind. Yahweh, Elohim. Covenant-making, Redeemer, Elohim. Why? Are we being introduced to God at that point in that way? Now, you know in chapter 3 all that's going to become clear, but it's not in chapter 2. So, let's get into it. Alright? So, we'll pick it up. If you have your Bible, you'll want to read along with me. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When... uh, 
Yahweh Elohim made the earth, the heavens, and no shrub of field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up for Yahweh Elohim had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came upon, came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living nephish soul. Now, Yahweh Elohim had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was uh, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Got all these trees, and all of a sudden we name two of them? What's that all about? And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold that, ha- that land is good. Aromatic, aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher or Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Interesting rendering of the word put. Almost all the English versions use the word put, and yet the word means rest. Rested him. Now, does that ring anything? That's a little more obscure for some of you probably, but if you look into Deuteronomy and then later in the book of Hebrews, every time God talks about Humanity, His people being in the midst of His will, they are in His rest. And so He put the man in the Garden of Eden uh, to work it, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it... You will surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, if we'd been reading all of this together, chapters 1 and 2, all of a sudden we'd be shocked. Because all throughout creation, He did this and it was good. He did this and it was good. He did this and it was good. And then we come to this verse, It is not good. It's just a shocker. It's a stopper in the story. It is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable, meaning something like himself, that is a complementary piece to himself. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib 
he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, for she was taken out of Ish, man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There is so much in this chapter. Um, we would really do well with three hours, uh, but we won't. We won't do that. So let's talk a little bit about what we just uh, read and looked at. You might want to keep that open so you can keep referring to it. When we come to God actually forming and fashioning man, we're told that God then uh, forms him out of dust. What is it that primarily and essentially makes man? It's not dust. In the very next phrase, we don't really have a man until God breathes His own breath, which is the same word in Hebrew for spirit, into the man. And then the man comes alive. As wondrous as the human body is, as complex, as beautiful, as mysterious as the body is, it's only a house in which man lives. It's only a vehicle that transports man around in a physical world. So as wondrous as the body is, the even more supreme miracle is that God released His own breath, something of Himself, into the man. His own spirit. Then God lets man know about His authority. He places him in this thing that you can only call paradise. This garden with all these trees and all this water and all this fruit to partake of. And he says, you, you can have any of it. You can consume any of the fruit, uh, enjoy any of the trees, but one. And so we find out very early in the story that God has all the authority. God has all the power, both as creator and as our Lord. And we have accountability. Now, see, I'm, I'm already, you're catching how un-PC we already are. Because, uh, you know, in our world and in our culture, I'm my own person and I do my own thing and I call my own shots and I choose, you know, what levels of accountability, if any, I'll have about whatever. But when you say, um, take my life, make it yours, I want to think like you, I want to act like you, I want to do life like you, you know, if, if we meant what we sang a moment ago, then that is a radical, uh, counter-cultural thing that we're doing. That's why I asked if we really meant that a moment ago. I mean, it's absolutely counter-cultural. And then we find out that God not only has authority, but He gives authority. And we also kind of got a preview of that in chapter 1, 20, verses 26 to 28, when He says He created man as male and female, to have rule and dominion over all of this world and all of the, uh, the animal life and so on that's therein, 
all that's illustrated here when God parades all of the animal life in front of Adam and lets Adam name them. See, that's, if you get to name something, you're the one that's over it. You have the authority over it. And so now we find out that mankind has been entrusted, has been stewarded with this incredible authority in this world. We have the authority because we're under authority. Countercultural. A lot of us want authority, but we don't want to be under anybody else's authority. Don't tell me what to do. By the way, let me tell you what to do. Okay? And then we uh, kind of have the whole creation of mankind wrapped up by God saying, See, all this becomes a part of you bearing my image. Again, in chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and then all this that we just read in chapter 2, is to say, I wanted to make mankind, I wanted to make men and women like me. So that they reflect my image. You know something about what God is like by looking at people. Pre-fall. Pre-sin. You get a great look at what the otherworldly God is like by looking at men and women. So, who is mankind? We are primarily image bearers of God. Now, mostly that's good. It's the kind of thing that can be twisted... And we see in chapter 3, that's exactly what the enemy did. He kind of twisted. You want to be like God, don't you? You're supposed to be a God image bearer, are you not? Then why would he tell you you couldn't eat of this particular fruit in this particular tree? So that's, that's next week. But mostly it's a good thing because we want to not just be like him. We want to reflect him. We want creation to enjoy God by seeing him reflected in us. What's that look like? Well, it has multiple dimensions to it. I'm going to just touch on uh, about two-thirds of it real briefly, and then I want to spend a little bit of time on the final third. The first is this. Uh, We reflect something of what God is like with morality. Uh, Just looking ahead through the Scriptures a little bit, every time that we do life righteously, which means basically that we do it rightly, we do it after His will, after His way, we reflect Him. So every time you choose God's way and God's will, there's something of Him reflected in the way that you're conducting yourself. Uh, The Scriptures tell us that we reflect Him every time we are, are doing life with purity. When we're not compromising about what's right and what's wrong, uh, but we're doing it in keeping with His character. The Scriptures say that every time that we're loving, we are reflective. Of him. And of course, love is not just sentimental feelings that you have about people, but it's the way that you sacrifice your life on their behalf. And here, and Jesus, of course, illustrated that and, and declared that greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life. So every time you're choosing to lay down your life and something of your life is lost for someone else, you're reflecting God. And then he says every time you engage and, and bestow forgiveness on people. You're reflecting Him because God is full of forgiveness. Long on patience, long on mercy and grace, and He forgives. 
and every time that we conduct ourselves in a humble way, which primarily says, I'm not going to think a whole lot about me. I'm going to think more about God than we reflect Him. And then holiness. And we sang about that a moment ago. Oh God, I, I want to have holiness in my life because it shows I don't belong to myself. To make something holy is to say, I set this aside, I set this apart for your use. So a holy sanctuary is a room that has been set aside for the worship of God. You know, anything that's been set aside for Him is made holy. So His image is reflected by morality. His image is also reflected by ability. Your ability, my ability, our ability. We have this ability to do reasoning, to consider things, to have discernment, to process. That's like God. We have language. We do some communication that is more sophisticated than anything else on the planet, which is like Him. We have creativity. We can think incredible thoughts and uh, give expression to those thoughts in a variety of things that we can develop and make and create. That's like Him. And uh, the abilities of our body are reflective of Him. Now, uh, as you know, the rest of the Scriptures will tell us that God does not have a body. God is not male. God is not female. But there are things that are a part of our body that still reflect Him. For example, God doesn't have eyes like we have eyes. But He sees. He doesn't have ears like we have ears, but He hears. He doesn't have hands like we have hands, but He touches. Are you following me? And so, uh, even though we have this like finite house that we call a body and God doesn't, it still is reflective of Him with the abilities that we have with the parts of our body. And then we get into the matter of sexuality. And here's where I want us to think together for just a few moments. Manhood. Womanhood. Was designed by God in creation to reflect His image. And probably one of the more obvious pieces of that is what we would call procreation. And notice it takes both men and women to be able to express God's creative activity in that kind of way. And so he goes into a little detail poetically to say this is why people leave their parents' homes and marry one another and connect with one another so that they can reflect the image of God in the bearing of children. God makes sons and daughters. Men and women in His image make sons and daughters. And then we're told in the Scriptures that something of God is reflected by the way a husband loves his wife and sacrifices himself for his wife and gives himself for his wife. The Scriptures tell us that the way that a husband will lovingly sacrifice on behalf of his wife pictures the way God sacrifices and loves us. And we kind of got into this a number of weeks ago, so I'm not going to belabor it, but one of the, the purposes of marriage is to reflect God. 
It's not particularly about me, although I'm a central part of my marriage. It's about how I can reflect God by how I love my wife. And then similarly, the wife's submission shows how God sometimes chooses to submit to us. Often, the scriptures will refer to God being a helper to man. And of course, one of the great chapters in all the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, talks about how Jesus thought it not too much of a sacrifice to leave glory, to leave heaven, and to come to earth and clothe himself with this body, this flesh, and submit himself to humanity as a servant. And of course, in Matthew chapter 20, he talks about, I didn't come into this world to be served. I came into this world to serve. And so if you want to know something about uh, the full dimension of God, you need to see men loving their wives well and sacrificially. And you need to see women submitting to their husbands with honor and respect. Because that's the way God is. Now, here's what I want you to to catch. This is pre-fall. This is before sin entered the picture. This is what God had in mind to reflect His image before we began to mar it with sin. His image is marred by sin in morality. No longer living righteously. No longer pure and loving and forgiving and humble and holy. His image is marred when we sin in our abilities. Where we have broken reasoning. Broken logic, broken ways of thinking and figuring things out, corrupt language, depraved creativity. And several images just came to my mind about that. Lustful use of the body, etc. All these things mar his image. And then uh, with respect to sexuality, adulterous sex, illegitimate conception, men abusing their power and abusing women, women refusing to submit and, and usurping and disrespecting and dishonoring men. All of that mars his image. All of that is the result of what we're going to look at next week in chapter 3. But when you know the rest of the story, that the meta-narrative, God's big story, is moving toward redemption, what's that mean? That He is moving to a point where He redeems us and takes us back to original intent. Take us back to innocence. Take us back to sinlessness. Take us back to the capacity to know Him and to reflect Him without the marring and the hindrance of sin. And so when, forget non-Christians and and people that haven't decided to become Christ followers, When believers choose to engage the culture and resist the redemptive plan of God, we're working against God, not with God. When we choose to accept a cultural value, a cultural norm, a cultural statement of what's right and what's wrong and what's fair and what's unjust and so on, rather than how God defines it, we are not moving with Him in concert toward redemption and toward pre-fall status. 
we're working against him and with the culture. Are you, are you following me? So, what's the meta narrative? Where's all this going? What's going to be the outcome at the end? We know most of the end. We don't know all the end. It's still some mystery, but a lot of the mystery has already been unpacked and unfolded for us. What is history all about? Listen, differentiated roles for men and women was not brought about by sin. It was brought about by creation. You get what I'm saying? To say that a man has a role of leadership with women and that a woman has a role of respect, honor, or submission is not a condemned piece of the fall story. That's how God dreamed it before the fall. Differentiated roles for men and women part of creation. Not the fall. Now, we've marred it. There's all kinds of problems with that. Men constantly abuse headship, leadership, authority, roles of leadership. Women constantly abuse respect, honor, manipulations, conniving, all those kinds of things. But that doesn't mean that God's plan was a bad plan. God's plan was perfect. And it doesn't mean anything about inequality among the sexes. He settled the equality score in chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, when he said, I'm going to create mankind in my image. I'm going to do that by making males and females. The equality issue was settled then. But in our uh, culture's thinking, in, in the systems of our world, we have made synonymous equality with genderlessness. The only way the world conceives of equality is if there are no differences between men and women. And friends, we're blowing up our culture because we're trying to make everything genderless. There was a purpose for there being differences, though there is equality. Minimizing the uniqueness of maleness, minimizing the uniqueness of femaleness, is bringing about confusion. And confusion is not bringing about happiness. Confusion is not bringing about freedom for genderless persons. Rather, it's wrecking havoc on us. So that divorce rates continue to soar. There's so much gender confusion, homosexuality continues to come on the rise. What it actually means to love someone or, or to honor someone is almost incomprehensible. We've so confused what those things are about. So let me just say it this way the world's way ain't working. And if we're going to be a part of God's story, if I'm going to understand how my story fits His story, and I'm going to move with Him in concert toward this redemption piece that overcomes the con condemnation piece, 
then I have to understand that redemption is going to be taking me back to creative intent. Okay. Take ballet dancers. You got a man, you got a woman. They're about to have a performance. You're their dance coach. And so as their dance coach, you're saying now, you know you both are great dancers. You both are equally talented. You both are endowed with such tremendous ability. And when your performance is over, both of you will hear this incredible applause and this wondrous response to your performance. Is that going to be enough to help that ballet couple reach maximized performance? Not at all. They must know their roles. They must know who's going to leap, who's going to catch. Who's going to be airborne, who's going to be on the ground. They must know who's moving this way and who's going that way. If they don't know what each other's going to do and get in concert with that, it's going to be a mess. An equal mess. <laughs> Rather than an equally beautiful performance. Are you following me? Okay. So, we've got this whole mindset that says, don't put this religious bondage on me. Don't try to cramp my style. Don't try to throw your morality down my throat. Don't try to give me all this list of do's and don'ts. I want to be free. I'll be with whomever I want to be. And, and it just flashed, so I'm going to say it. I actually caught uh, online this week, because I don't watch The View. But uh, they had an excerpt from The View where Woody Goldberg is like the lead person on that wacky talk thing. And so they were talking about, anytime I want sex, I'm going to have sex. If I want a relationship, then I'll start building a relationship with somebody. This is with the woman talking about how she's going to conduct her life. Nobody's going to tell me how to conduct my sexuality. Okay. You have the freedom to make that choice, but you need to know what that kind of freedom brings. So imagine... Two people deciding to go skydiving together. Right? You get up several thousand feet in the air. You jump out of a plane. Both know this wondrous freedom of free-falling. Right? And man, you're just going down, 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 down. Many miles per hour. And one has decided to be so free that she will not have a parachute strapped to her back. I'm not going to be encumbered with these straps and with this pack. The other person has decided, I love freedom, but I'm going to have a little bondage. I'm going to have just, you know, I'm going to wear this pack. And as they continue to descend, guess who's really free? The first person is in bondage to gravity and does not know it. But will know it real quick. The other person who had submitted to a pack that contained a parachute knows the greatest freedom as the cord is pulled, the chute is popped, and they're able to gently ascend to the ground to jump another day. False freedom is bondage. 
so we've got this great God who's doing this great work, making this world, making you, making me, uh, making the children that come from us, uh, laying uh, His authority before us, saying, stay within these parameters. And as you do, you'll have all this freedom. As you don't, then you will succumb to the bondage of sin. Let's pray about that together. So, Father, for some of us in the house today, there are just some really long-running, kind of hard-wired cultural messages in us that uh, it just felt like chalk across a board to talk about some of this today. But Lord, there's a part in us that really wants to know truth. We've heard it, that truth sets us free. And so, Father, for the person that the skepticism thing is still working, maybe a little cynicism is at work, I pray that as a loving, covenant, redeemer God, you just come close to that heart right now. That you would communicate and commune with them in a way that some of this begins to be unpacked and understood. That your spirit would make sense of your story. We pray in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.